Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Ve sallallahu ala seyyidina Muhammedin ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to our podcast, Left or Right, The Straight Path, Please. My name is Umar Abdullah and I'm very happy to welcome you back to another episode. We left off last time discussing what do we see when we apply an interpretive lens to a particular context. And if you recall, we looked at poverty, wealth and poverty, and we looked at how that could be understood from three different perspectives. We looked at it from a traditional conservative or right-wing perspective. We looked at it from a left-wing perspective. And we also looked at it from a traditional Islamic perspective. Today, inshallah, I would like to go further into that concept of a lens or a perspective and to look at what is actually behind that. What is a lens or a perspective based on? And we will find that it's based primarily on a theory and more often than not on the development and progression of that theory or that idea into an ideology. It's very important that we understand what these two words and the concepts behind them mean, because in this entire series, inshallah, we are looking very intensely and hopefully scrutinizing, analyzing and unpacking what is contained in the current ideologies in the time in which we live. So before we can actually get into that in any real way or with any depth of understanding, we need to understand what those key concepts actually mean. So that's going to be our content today, inshallah. First of all, we will begin with the dua of Imam al-Haddad, rahimahullah, his dua for learning, and inshallah that will enable us to focus and to gather our hearts and our thoughts, inshallah, for today's session. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Inni nawaitu ta'alum wa ta'alim, wa tadakkar wa tadkir, wa nafa wa al-intifa' wa al-ifada wa al-istifada, wa al-hatha ala tamassuki bi kitabillahi wa sunnati rasuli, wa dua ila al-huda wa dalalata ala al-khair, ibtigha'a wa jahillahi wa maradatihi wa kurbihi wa thawabihi subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ameen. You might think it odd that because we're studying very secular subjects here to actually include a very religiously orientated dua. But inshallah, we want our study of these topics of the world in which we live to also be a form of worship for us. Because inshallah, we need to know what's going on so that we can best apply our religious values and our religious practice and inshallah our well-constituted Islamic paradigm for understanding the world to our current situation and inshallah there's that is a form of worship in itself because once we understand things and we can become better Muslims we can orientate ourselves correctly and inshallah make sure to the best of our ability that our our feet are firmly planted on this Siratul Mustaqim and that we're able to live in the way in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has intended for us to live and also given us the uh, guidelines and the role model in the form of the Prophet wasallam, uh, to guide us through and to help us live properly. So although the content is secular, inshallah, the perspective that we're coming from is a deeply and intensely religious perspective. And inshallah, that's part of our application of our Islamic knowledge, inshallah. 
Okay, so we're here today to discuss theory and ideology, what those two words mean and how they are applied. So we will be looking at a bit of history, we will be looking at a number of different aspects, some philosophy, and uh, going into this in greater detail, inshallah. First of all, theories. What is a theory? In terms of definition, a theory is an explanation. That's its most basic concept. It's an explanation or an explanatory proposition or an idea or ideas that are used to impose order or meaning on a phenomenon, whether that phenomenon be observable or experienced or existent in some way. Basically, it's an attempt to explain something around us that we see or experience. And that's something that human beings have been doing for a very long time. And last week, as we mentioned, we looked at this concept of wealth and poverty and we had a bit of a look at the application of some theories to try and explain that phenomena. What we're interested here is looking at mainly political, social, cultural and some economic theories to explain the contemporary world context. And we need to know which theories have been applied in modern history and continue to be applied in order to explain the patterns, events and human actions and behaviours and the outcomes of those things that we are currently experiencing. Some examples of political theories would be, these are all terms that you'd be familiar with, the theory of freedom that every citizen in a nation should have a certain amount or a lot of personal and political freedom. Also the, the theory or the idea of equality, that there is a political equality amongst people. Justice is another one. Democracy and finding a balance between individual and community rights. So these are some of the theories, some of the ideas that inform and impact upon the way in which we understand our political circumstances. Likewise, we have sociological theories. And nowadays, most of these are based on Marxist conflict theories, which we will be spending a lot of time going into and discussing, inshallah, some of that today. Um, we also have functionalist theories, such as what Durkheim put forward, functionalist and structuralist theories, which try and explain the structure of society almost like a body in the sense that one part does its function, another part does its function, and they all come together in a, in a type of ecosystem or functional structure and system whereby each part of it has some role to play and subsequently derives some type of benefit. We also have feminist theories where feminists have come forward with this idea of the patriarchy and they have said that that patriarchy needs to be dismantled. So that comes under conflict theories. There are also ideas such as labelling theories, which is applied to uh, crime and justice, whereby there's a theory that criminals are labelled in a particular way and that this inhibits their ability to come back into society and integrate fully. And there are also some pseudoscientific, or we should say scientific types of theories, such as the uh, survival of the fittest theory, 
whereby those in society who survive are those who have the best gene sets. More popular in the 1930s with a concept called eugenics, whereby if a good gene set or gene pool was found, then it would produce stronger and better citizens and that this would affect and impact society in a positive way. We also have examples of economic theories, so starting from Adam Smith in the 18th century where he came up with the free market idea, laissez-faire, not having too much government or other authority uh, intervention into the economic goings-on of those who had trade and uh, merchandise, etc. And then also the trickle-down effect, uh, which is something that the neoconservatives now tend to like, whereby those with wealth are the producers and creators of wealth, and that it's through them that wealth will trickle down to the rest of society if they're given the freedom to pursue wealth and the creation of wealth however they like, and, in, and that that will affect everybody positively in the end. They're more conservative types of theories, whereas the opposite theory to that would be the Marxist theory of economics, uh, whereby there is a certain small ruling class, the bourgeoisie, who own everything and that they oppress the proletariat, the working class, who have only got something to trade, which is their time and their labour, and that they are exploited for that and paid poor wages in order to produce great amounts of wealth. So that needs to be overthrown in a revolutionary moment or moments as it continues to the uh, final utopian bliss that was envisaged by Marx and Engels, whereby workers of the world would come to own the means of production. So this is an economic theory as well. Cultural theories are also tied up with these other types of theories that we've mentioned. And what we're finding these days is that our concepts of culture have been very heavily influenced by Marxist theory and particularly the concept of hegemony, which Gramsci, who was an Italian Marxist, developed further, and that there is a, a dominant class, that there is a dominant concept of culture which is maintained by those in power. When it comes to cultural theory, of course there are many, and one that is particularly favoured amongst academics today in the social sciences and education departments would be those of Michel Foucault, who was a French philosopher. He'd passed away in the 1980s, and his concepts of power and representation, his idea that culture is a direct instrument of government, which is applied and pursued uh, through government sources to maintain particular ideas about identity and who people are and in doing so create a type of uh, hegemony and a type of overriding and dominating structure uh, which is used to control people. So that's sort of just a little bit of what Foucault was talking about, but his main concepts were about power representation and the lack of freedom within that, and he particularly looked at crime and justice to understand those particular phenomena, and he developed his theories about what he saw in those areas. So when do these theories or these descriptive ways of looking at events 
and activities and phenomena around us turn into something called ideology. Well, ideology is when particular ideas become ideals. So they no longer just become an abstract concept which people are able to use as a means of understanding or describing, but they actually get ascribed some type of moral or ethical value such that that way of looking at something becomes a truth. So when people look at society, for example, and wealth and poverty from a Marxist point of view, they won't see that as merely a description or a possibility that the ruling class oppresses the working class, but they will see that as a truth, that that is the only way to understand what's going on. And people start to believe that. So instead of other types of religious belief, which people may have had in the past, that's now being cast aside because this materialist understanding of economic relations between these two uh, core groups in society now becomes the way in which the entire world and everything in it is perceived, that there is an inherent power relation there and the only way to bring about justice and where does that concept of justice even come from? How is their idea of justice now going to be implemented in this unequal system? And it needs to be implemented through overthrowing the ruling class by the working class and bringing about a restabilization and a new power dynamic whereby there is a new form of equality. So that's become a truth a universal truth that people all over the world have not just looked at as a potential idea or way of understanding, but as something that they cling to, believe in, and hold with such high esteem that that they will actually fight with their lives to make sure or to try their very best that this revolution happens and that what is uh, put in its place will be some step towards a communist utopia. What's interesting in the development of ideology is that Marx actually used it in a negative way at the beginning. So it wasn't that his ideas came out and everyone jumped on the bandwagon and said, oh, yes, this is the reality, this is the way the world is and we're all going to fight for that until we die. No, that came later. How it actually started was that he developed this concept called dominant ideology or ruling class ideology, whereby his critique of the bourgeoisie of the ruling class is that they had a certain set of ideas about how they wanted society to be and that they implemented and made sure that those ideas were perpetuated through the development of the public education system, through obviously their economic structures whereby they had people working for wages whilst they maintained the bulk of the wealth and through the power structures, political power structures by not having what they call universal male suffrage. So suffrage has got to do with giving people the right to vote and extending what they call the franchise. So if you are enfranchised into the political system, it means that you've been given the right to vote. And so in the mid-19th century, there was not universal male suffrage, which meant that not all men had the right to vote. And so Marx saw that as a way of the dominant class ensuring its 
uh, oppression and hegemony over working class men. So he was very, very critical of these ideological views, what he termed ruling class ideology, and he wanted to make sure that that was changed. So his concept and use of ideology was negative. And so what happened after that is that a new idea of ideologies began and it began in opposition to the dominant ideology. Being born in opposition meant very quickly that there were a lot of people who were most unhappy about the situation that they were in and who began to take on Marxism as a belief system for themselves. But this actually required something extremely fundamental to the concept of Marxism itself, which was developing class consciousness. So Marxism itself didn't become an ideology until its core concept of waking up the working class from their slumber and waking them up from the ideology that had been imposed upon them by the ruling classes had occurred. And so they then had to realise and be roused from their, what he called, false consciousness about their position that, hey, it's okay, you can be rich and wealthy and I can live in some rat-infested slum in London and work in your factory for 16 hours a day for peanuts and starve to death if there's a famine or have my house burnt down and that's okay for me because I'm just so happy that I've got a little scrap of bread on my table every second day. So this was a false this is what Marx called false consciousness, whereby the working class was lulled into this perpetual slumber, uh, whereby they were happy to serve their, their masters. And so he wanted to create a new class consciousness where they woke up, realised their oppressed state and gathered together in order to revolt and overthrow this inequality and overthrow the ruling class and own their own means of production. And that itself became an ideology. So Marxist ideology is something that was born in conflict and born in opposition. And the key aspect of it is that it aims to deconstruct the dominant uh, situation and to change it. And that, I have to tell you, is the most important thing to understand. And if we're going to understand ourselves as Muslims in the modern world and in the contemporary world and how Muslims in Western society are represented in media, how our uh, interests are defined for us politically, socially and culturally and what it means for us to be interacting and in so-called active citizens in democratic countries, we need to understand these most important concepts that leftist ideology, Marxist ideology is obviously inherently oppositional, that it's deconstructive and that its goal is to seek to change. And they are the three ideological elements that are so strong in our society at the moment and that are actually in a polarised opposition to the status quo and the current right-wing conservative type of government and society and values that we live in in Western countries. How those ideological positions came from Marxism in, say, 1849 when he published the Communist Manifesto and how they have developed until now, which is around about 170 years later, where we're sitting in the 
first fifth of the 21st century, how that actually has developed over that amount of time is also something that we need to understand. And we need to understand the movements and the trends that that has gone through and how it's manifested. So what started for Marx as mostly an economic theory suddenly became an economic and political and social ideology that people believed in and fought for and has since morphed into culture. And so there's a concept called cultural Marxism as well, which we will look at, whereby these ideas of Marx have been transposed onto culture now and what's born from that is critical theory and gender studies and race studies and um, ethnicity studies and also uh, studies in sexuality and making sure that the justice and social justice is attained for all people within those groups. Yeah, and so the latest development of that is gender identity and the concepts about transsexuality, about um, pansexuality, uh, all come into that. So we've gone from being a class movement in the mid-19th century to a gender identity movement in the 21st century. Now, how has that happened? And how is it that these core concepts of being oppositional, deconstructive and seeking to change have actually managed to produce such different ideas, different theories and different ideologies 170 years down the track? And this is really important to understand, as I said. An example of why that's important is because if we look at uh, Nike, the sports company, and how there's a particular ad that they use, an advertisement, where they have a Muslim woman in one of their Nike sports hijabs with a logo saying, don't change for the rules, change the rules. So if we look at that, how are we meant to understand what that means? How is it that a Muslim woman has now been appropriated by a multinational Western sports company in her hijab to promote a type of change and revolution in cultural values? And that's something that we need to get our heads around and it can be quite difficult, but we won't understand that reality today unless we go right back and look at where that came from. We need to look at feminism, the radical side of it, and equality feminism. We need to look at concepts of social justice and also religious identity in the modern world to understand how it is that a Muslim woman can be used to promote a product but at the same time make a very big political statement. I hope, inshallah, that this has shed a little bit of light on the concepts and the ideas of theory and ideology and that the core elements of that have been established. It might seem a bit confusing at the outset to have all these big words and concepts and things thrown around and there's a bit of history and there's a bit of philosophy and there's a bit of this and that all thrown in there. But I would urge you to bear with us and to know that... These really are the most important elements of the society that we live in now that as Muslims we need to understand. But more important than that is establishing for ourselves our key framework for understanding all of that through the metaphor of the Sirat al-Mustaqim, the straight path.
So just as in the last episode, we looked at how we would consider wealth or poverty from different perspectives, including an Islamic perspective, we need simultaneously to understand more and develop our understanding of how things are working today, but at the same time with the development of a strong and proper framework for understanding from the Islamic scholarly perspective. There's a lot of thinking that's going on. Some of this can be very challenging. Some of this can be quite upsetting because it's stirring up the pot and making people think hard about why do I believe what I believe when it comes to my society? And why is it that I think... Muslim women are oppressed, for example. Why do I think that Muslim women need to fight for equality? Why is it fine for me to talk about Muslim identity politics? Like, where does that even come from? Um, Do you know? Why is it that I will go out and hold up a banner, perhaps in a Mardi Gras festival, maybe, because we want to show support to other minorities? Uh, Why do we even think we're a minority? Why will I go and hold up something that says my right, my choice, my life, my hijab? How is it that the hijab has become such a political symbol of both oppression and freedom for Muslim women? Why is there this contradiction about the hijab? And why isn't the hijab really a religious garment for some people who want to co-opt Muslims? into other social values, cultural values and ideologies about their way of understanding and believing in the world. So I encourage you to listen further and inshallah Ramadan is coming and may we reach it with khair and lutf and afia inshallah. In the month of Ramadan inshallah we will be looking and building our concept of Surah Al-Fatiha and the straight path that's in it. And after that, we'll go back to the dunya and look at how we can apply that to our current context. So I hope, inshallah, that some of these core concepts of theory and ideology, the core concepts, not necessarily the application, which might be confusing at the moment, but that the core concept of a theory as a description and ideology as ideals about how things should be is more clear now and inshallah I look forward to joining you as we will commence next time inshallah on our understanding of the siratul mustaqim wa sallallahu ala sayyidina muhammad wa ala alihi alhamdulillahi rabbil alamin jazakumullahu khair assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh